0: Good morning. How are you today? Um, This past week we completed the book of Exodus in our Immersed Bible reading, which brings us to the halfway mark of completing the Pentateuch. First five books of the Bible, and I would say congratulations to you. And so now this is the beginning of the last half of this reading. This is week nine of 16 weeks, weeks nine, and we're going to divide, dive into the book of Leviticus. <laughs> week nine, day 41, page 151 in your book. And it's not for the faint of heart, I know that. It may very well separate the men from the boys in the reading. Because you have to know how to read the book of Leviticus. Please, please, please read the notes. The immersed Bible has done such a wonderful job of providing uh, sort of an introductory comments before each of the books of the Bible. Please read those notes uh, on the book of Leviticus before you begin And there, all those notes start on page 151. Um, The first thing that strikes us when we're reading this book is when we read Leviticus, is that the holy God is actually present with us. Everything you read, you need to read through that filter. God is with us. And virtually every detail of our lives is affected by his presence. And how many are thankful for that today? The second thing is that God provides a way which we will read through sacrifices and feasts and Sabbaths to bring everything in and about us into his holy presence. That's what we also need to read as you're reading all of the copious details that are in the book. That it's done for a purpose. It's done to bring us into his presence, transformed in the fiery blaze of the holy but he makes his habitation in us and among us as believers because he is essentially saying this to us, I am holy, therefore you are to be holy. And once we realize this, then these seemingly endless details and instructions of Leviticus, they simply become signposts to us pointing the good news, which is this, that God cares that much about every detail of our lives. He is willing everything in and about us into transformation. And in short, while we may look at the, some may look at the book of Leviticus with uh, uh, some drudgery, the Israelites looked upon it as delight for the reasons I just mentioned. As you read, please remember there are great cultural differences between that day and our day today. However, it is important that we embrace the book of Leviticus. It's part of the whole of the story that we must embrace for we will never truly, truly understand the full impact of the New Testament until we accept what we learn about the significance of the book of Leviticus. So do I have you excited about it now? (laughs) If you're behind, get with us. Week nine, page 151 is where we start, this afternoon or tomorrow. And all I would say is, come on, Bethesda, let's do it. Have you heard that before? Many of you have. All right, I want you to specifically, and I don't know if this is uh, was mentioned before uh, this morning. I don't think so. I want to specifically be in prayer for Gerard's mom. The reason he's not here today is he is with his uh, mother who is uh, struggling physically in Shreveport. And um, I just got, where's Javon? Has he been texting you anything this morning? Okay. Um, I don't know what all this means, but I've been texting with him this morning and he says, we are watching God do the impossible. And so, and he said, more details to follow because uh, what I knew of yesterday was that she basically was on machines that were keeping her going. And he said, we are watching this morning, God do the impossible. So thank the Lord for that. Lord, keep your hand upon Gladys today. Precious, precious woman. I ask that you will let your healing, strength and grace be upon her. And Lord, touch Gerard as he's there with his mom today in Jesus' name. And the church said, also wanna let you know what happened just this morning. I <clears throat> was walking down the, the um, office hall and I, I heard someone really, really uh, wailing in anguish. And it's one of our board members, Eric Lopez, who is from Puerto Rico. He found out this morning after he got to church here today that his 39 year old brother had passed away in the night, leaving behind a wife and two precious children. And so um, keep Eric and his family. Um, in your prayers and in your hearts as they'll be um, laying his brother to rest. All right, can we go to the word of the Lord today? Are you ready? How much time do I have? Two hours. Okay, great. Should be just enough. If you have ever seen any of the old photographs from the old Northside Church, which is what Bethesda was called until the late 70s, Uh, The old church was on the corner of Clinton and Exchange Streets in Cowtown of Fort Worth. If you've ever seen any of those old photographs of the church buses that the church had back then, you would see that there was a particular verse that was painted on every vehicle that the church owned. They had uh, buses and they had a truck. Okay, there's a truck. Um, and the, the tent behind it that is very indicative of uh, the old Northside church days in the north part of the cowtown area of Fort Worth now you can't see it very clearly there let's go on to the next picture you see there's a verse that one contending for the faith this was the the um, from the book of Jude it's actually Jude verse 3. And they had it inscribed it on every bus and every vehicle vehicle that the church had. Contending for the faith once delivered to the saints. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, the word contend means to strive for, to fight for, to defend, to protect, um, to um, to do everything you can to protect. And it, there's, there's a sense of contend, has a, a sense of, of reaching in it, a sense of, of real earnest yearning for it was a strong conviction of those people of that day and time, upon whose shoulders you and I stand today, that as a people of God, our faith is something to be defended. Our faith is something to be protected. And so what did they know that you and I need to be reminded of today and that is this. Why does our faith need to be protected? Why is it that uh, that, that we need to be uh, intentional in protecting and defending our faith? Because our ancestors knew that there are enemies to our faith, enemies of our faith. There are plenty of forces that are endeavoring to destroy our faith today. It was true then, and it's true today. But our faith is worth fighting for, it is worth defending and protecting. Amen. Let's be reminded of what Scripture says about our faith from Hebrews. You know this. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good. Testimony. There is no other way to obtain a strong and a good testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ except by renewing your faith and the defending of the of of your faith. And again, there are forces trying to keep that from happening every day in our lives. Verse 6 says: But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that is exactly what. Well, the enemy wants to kill, steal, and destroy in all of us. He wants to to, to kill the idea that we will believe in God. for, for uh, It's impossible to please him. He, for he who comes to God, must believe that he is and that, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And the enemy is out to kill that because without faith, you cannot please God. You can do all kinds of great things. You can attend church. You can sing out loudly. You can serve the church in some capacity. You can even preach behind a pulpit. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. I believe there's a responsibility of faith to those of us who have been walking with God for quite a season of time. That's why we believe so strongly in this church in the idea of mentoring uh, in passing along the good things of God, the things God has taught us in our journey of faith. That's the older ones showing the path of faith to the younger ones. And if you are seasoned like me, you need to be mentoring other young people that are coming along. You need to make yourself available to say, this is what the Lord has done in my life. Because we still need, younger people need models of faith. People who have walked with God for years and they have endured the tests and trials and the difficulties and they need to someone to say, this is how you can do that. We have a responsibility to be models of faith to those, of a, to those in our fellowship with less time serving God. Let me take a little survey this morning. How many of you have been a believer or you've been born again for more than 10 years? Raise your hand. Okay. More than 20 years. Raise your hand. More than 30 years. Ladies, you don't have to acknowledge this if you don't. More than 40 years. Raise your hand. All right, to those of us who have years behind us with walking with the Lord, worshiping him, praising him, bringing our sacrifice of praise, coming in and worshiping God and serving in his house when it costs us something. The author to the Hebrews gives this incredible word to all the young believers about us old folks. He actually tells the younger ones to look to the older ones. Uh, Hebrews 13 says, remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow the example of their faith. And then verse eight is next. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, I looked upon that and I thought, well, how humbling is that? Because the command here is for all the young believers to look upon those of us who are who have shared the word of God with them and that they are to follow our conduct of faith. The request being made of young people is to observe how the older believers have lived their faith through their struggles, as I said, and the pain, the hardships, disappointments. Look to those who have brought you the word of God and, and you are to follow their conduct Uh, their their conduct and then the strong inference here is that those of us who are older and our lives are the ones offering example to the younger ones our faith hear me is to be the living proof that jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever it's a humbling responsibility so what does that mean for me it means i need more than saving faith for heaven happy to have that really I need now faith to live on this earth. How many want some now faith today? Let me see your hand. The words inscribed on the church buses of the church, of Northside Church from long ago, from the book of Jude, were telling us that we need to contend for the faith, for we fight against the enemies of our faith. Jude tells us. That his intention, when he was writing, he says he was just going to write. When we come to that verse, I'm going to show it to you in just a second. His intention was to just write a nice letter uh, about the salvation that we all share. Just a, a nice letter to encourage the believers. That's what he was going to write. Just, we're all good. Things are wonderful. Salvation's wonderful. We're all under grace. Kumbaya. Uh, it only takes a spark to, you know, all of that. That was his intention. Let's look what he said in Jude, verse three Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write you about the salvation we all share. So that's what I was going to do. But now I find that when you dig in the Greek of this, you see there's a sense of urgency to it. Now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his people. Why? Why did he change his mind? Why did he decide he's going to write you this nice feel-good letter But now I've got to write you something different. Why? Because verse 4, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago for they have denied our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. My plan was to bring us all together, sing a few songs, uh, reprise a few songs here and there, just talk about our common faith. um, That's what was my, but I was shaken by the Holy Spirit. When you dig through the Greek of that right there, I was shaken by the Holy Spirit, and I became urgently aware that I need to tell the body of Christ: contend for the faith, fight for the faith, defend your faith. Protect your faith. And I thank God that still today in 2019, there are men and women of God who stand in this pulpit and completely understand that there are enemies of our faith and that we need to contend for the faith and we need to stand for the faith. Why? Because the enemies are on the outside? In this case... Jude is not talking about the enemies on the outside. When I come to this, I can't help but think of the hundreds of times I heard Pastor Des pray this prayer. He he would say he would ask God to give us grace to deal with the pressures without and the conflicts within because they're always there, aren't they? Pressures without, but conflicts within. Sometimes that's the conflicts within our own heart, within our own being. Sometimes it's the conflicts within the church. So in this case, Jude is speaking about the enemies that he said that have wormed their way in. They have come to the inside. Speaking of those who've come in and, they have tra- and uh, in, in their way into the church and transformed the grace of God into lewdness. Now, maybe you'd like me to say that a prettier way, but that's exactly what the word says. Those who've come in and said, no, they take take the grace of God and then simply say, it's okay to live immoral life. It sounds a little too uncomfortably close to what I hear across our country today. Literally, Jude was saying that they, they wear the grace of God as a label but they do not walk in the grace of God. They do not walk in his light because there's no change in them. There is no transformation in them. They sing all kinds of songs about grace and sin right while they're doing so. There's a strong sense in Jude that we are to be awakened to contend for the faith. Take your Bibles or your device or whatever and turn with me to 1 Kings 18. I'm sure the verses will be up on the screen. Here we find Elijah. Elijah. And we see that this man is contending for his faith. And I want to take just a few minutes and talk about him. We're looking at a man who had to battle against the enemies of his faith. He knew what it was to have someone attacking his faith. And as we look at his battle, we find great similarities to our own for sure. And I want to... um, very simply and yet very clearly talk about these battles and see if there's not something that you and I can relate to because I would tell you that the first stage in the battle to contend for our faith is dealing with the invisible. Say that with me. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 41. Then Elijah said to Ahab, King Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of of the abundance of rain. Other versions say, I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. Now, what's important about that is that it had been a long, long season of drought. and They were in desperate, desperate need of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. But Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and there he bowed down on the ground, and he put his face between his knees. And then he said to his servant, servant, go up now and Look toward the sea. So he, the servant, went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And seven times Elijah said, go again, go again, go again. Seven times, go again. Elijah is facing the first stage in his battle to contend for the faith. And the first stage is this, it seems invisible. It seems invisible. Now, one thing I'd like to point out here. Just from reading this particular verse 42 many people once they receive a word what they do is they go back to eating and drinking once the promise of god has been announced to them they eat and drink now you've seen it all in scripture eating and drinking is often used as a biblical expression to symbolize spiritual carelessness Uh, if you want if you're taking notes Go read it later. Look at the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12. It basically is, and they eat and drink. Uh, spiritual blindness or, or, or neglect is what it implies with, with a focus on self-fulfillment. Eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Elijah comes out and says, though, I, I hear something. know I, I, I'm hearing. We've had this drought for over three years, but I, I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. And while the king goes to eat and drink, to relax and be negligent, if it were, Elijah does what? In Scripture we see he goes before his God. And the question we should all ask ourselves is this. When I receive the promise of God, when God speaks a word to me, when he says something to me, do I go to battle for it? Do I protect it? Do I fight for it? Do I contend for it with my face before God? Or do I sit on a promise, eat and drink and be merry because the promise has been spoken? True faith understands that the promise of God does indeed come. But we are to contend for the faith. I'm to pray through it. I am to continue with it. I am to hold on to that which God has promised. I think it's notable that Elijah said, I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. Listen to me. For in the battle against the enemy of our faith, we often hear that which we do not yet see. I us going to let that simmer a bit. In the battle for our faith, we often will hear what we do not yet see. Who knows what I'm talking about this morning? We hear what we cannot yet see. I hear a promise from God. I, I, I hear it. I, I, I can sense something for my son or for my, for my daughter. I hear the sound of the abundance of rain in my life or, or for my marriage. I know it's been a long drought. We've been without rain for so long. It is not unusual for us to go through dry seasons in the battle of our faith. There will be times of drought. Don't let anybody tell you any differently. A drought in my confidence for the future. A drought in my marriage. A drought in my relationship with my kids. A drought in my relationship with my church. A drought in my relationship with God. But in the battle of our faith, we often hear so deeply that which we do not yet see. Because you're fighting the enemy of the invisible. The invisible is out to attack you. So, what do you do when a promise comes, yet you're in a season of drought? Ahab decided he would eat and drink, and he allowed the promise to drift. Elijah took a much different path, he went with his face before God. Yes, the promise has come, but I'm here in your presence, God. I'm not just going to stand back and do nothing. I'm not going to sit back. It's not time to go eat and drink and be merry. It's time for me to press into God. It's time for me to get into your presence and find out exactly what you would have have me do, what you would have me say. I am sure that I'm speaking to someone today who would say, the promise has been spoken over my life, but I don't see anything yet. Sometimes... Our personal droughts are known only to God and to us. Sometimes people around us don't see the drought we're going through. We've, we have, uh, we've hidden it, we've guarded it, we've protected it. Sometimes my outward appearance, the songs I sing, and certain realms of my life, my apparent successes are doing better than my soul. So Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he affirmed that he had heard the sound of the abundance of rain. So we've read it. He says to his servant, go towards the sea. Go look. Go look and see. It's, surely it's coming. God has spoken. Go look and see. See if it's coming. I know this is true. Let me illustrate this for you. Where's Adrian? Adrian. Adrian, come stand right here. You're going to be the servant this morning, okay? Elijah said to his young servant, Go, run toward the sea and look and come back and and tell me if you hear anything. Go, go run toward the sea and come back and tell me. Run, run. For I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. I know God has promised. It's been a long time. What did you see? What? Go again. I've heard the sound of the abundance of rain. What did you hear? What did you see? Go again. Church, the promises of God are true, and the promise is walking toward its fulfillment. Where'd the sea go? Do they move it? Church, if it is if the promise is long and coming, wait for it, fight for it, pray for it, contend for it, for it is for an appointed time. What did you see? What? Go look again, go again. The Bible says that he sent the servant. Seven times. So do you feel compassion for Adrian this morning? (laughs) Give him a good hand. He did a great job. Thank you, Adrian. But I heard the sound. I know I did. I've heard it. I've heard it deep within my soul. I've heard the sound and I know it's God. And he said, go again, go again, seven times around the walls of Jericho. Does that sound familiar to you? Seven times, let the king be dipped in the Jordan River to be healed of his leprosy. It may be long in coming, but the promise is walking toward its fulfillment. And I've come to this service this morning praying, and believing that God is saying to someone in this place today, you have heard the sound of the abundance of rain, but you are in the battle of faith, and you are facing the invisible. If that's where you find yourself, here's my word for you today. Go again. Pray again. Stand again. Love again. Forgive again. Oh, church of God, don't you hear it? Don't you hear the voice of God this morning saying to a mother who's desperate, to a father who's absolutely uh, beyond his wits, go again, pray again, stand again, love again, release again, give again, trust again, surrender again, worship again, give him praise again. I love the story of Elgin Staples. In the night and early morning of August 8 and 9, 1942, the life of 19-year-old Navy signalman, third-class Elgin Staples of Akron, Ohio, was saved by someone over 8,000 miles away. Serving aboard the cruise USS Astoria in support of the landings on Guadalcanal, Staples and his crewmates suddenly found themselves illuminated by spotlight and under attack by a force of Japanese cruisers north of Savo Island. At approximately 0200 hours on the morning of August 9, the Astoria's number one eight-inch turret was hit and exploded, sweeping Signalman Staples into the air and overboard. Signalman Staples, dazed and wounded in his legs by shrapnel, kept afloat thanks to an inflatable rubber life belt he had donned shortly before the explosion. More than 200 men were lost aboard the Astoria. At approximately 0600 hours, Staples along with other survivors were rescued by the destroyer USS Bagley and returned to assist the Astoria, which was heavily damaged but attempting to beach itself in the shallow waters off Guadalcanal. Those efforts failed as Astoria took on a dangerous list before finally sinking at approximately 1,200 hours, putting Staples back into the water, still wearing that same life belt. Rescued a second time by the transport USS President Jackson, Signalman Staples was first evacuated to New Caledonia before giving uh, leave to return home. It was while on board the President Jackson that Staples first closely examined the life belt that had saved him, and he was surprised that it had been manufactured in his hometown of Akron, Ohio, by the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company. Staples also noticed an unusual set of numbers stamped on that same belt that he had been wearing. Well, back home, the news that came to his mother was that he had been lost at sea. Finally, though, when he returned home to Akron, Ohio, Signalman Staples thought to bring along the life belt to show his mother, uh, Vera Staples. After a quietly emotional welcome, he sat with his mother in their kitchen telling her about his recent ordeal and hearing what had happened at home since he had gone away. That was when his mother informed him that to do her part, she had gotten a job, uh, a wartime job, at the Firestone plant there in Akron. Surprised he jumped up and went and grabbed his life belt from his duffel bag and he put it on the table in front of her and says, mom, take a look at that. He said, it was made right here in Akron at your plant. She leaned forward and taking the rubber belt in her hands, she read the label. She had just heard the story and knew that in the darkness of that terrible night, it was this one piece of rubber that had saved her son's life. When she looked at him, her mouth and her eyes were wide open with surprise. She said, son, my job at Firestone is to be an inspector. These are my ins- this is my inspector number. Out of thousands and thousands of life vests, She had inspected the one that would save the life of her son. That's why it may look impossible to you today. Everything that you've received has been negative or seems impossible. Here's what I would have to say. Go again. Pray again. Worship again. I just need to say to someone this morning that even when you don't see it, he's working. Even when you don't feel it. He's working. He never stops. He never stops. I said he never stops. He never stops working. It may be invisible to you, but that is part of contending for your faith, part of fighting for your faith. And there will always be people around. There will all, they're always there who will say, oh, I see nothing. I see nothing. Just a piece of rubber. It's nothing. There will always be cynics, and there will always be people who tell you that you are believing in vain. You're being foolish. You're being silly. I see nothing, or it's too late, or it's it's too much, it's too deep. All hope is gone. It's too big. This is impossible. And certainly we know that the devil himself will shout loudly in your ear to you that there's nothing there. It's invisible. There's nothing there. What are you believing in? It's nothing. It's invisible. It's the first stage of the battle of your faith. And I would say, Go again, go again, go again, go again. Pray again, stand again. The first stage of the battle of our faith is it's invisible. There's nothing there. Listen to me very carefully, church. Anything that is of eternal value will at one point look like nothing. Anything that is truly of God will at one point look like nothing. The first enemy of your battle is it's invisible. The second enemy of your battle is it's insignificant or insufficient. First Kings 18:44. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said there's the servant came back well there's a cloud it's as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot, go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord, catch this, the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, And he girded up his loins, and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. It's not nothing, but it's clearly not enough. It's not nothing, but it's clearly insignificant. First battle, it's nothing. It's invisible. Second battle, okay, it's not nothing. It's just overwhelmingly, underwhelmingly insignificant. It's so small. A cloud the size of a man's hand in the midst of a vast sky? It's almost imperceivable. One of the deadliest traps in the battle of contending for our faith is what we have is not enough. It is a deadly trap. What I have to work with, what I have to do, what I feel like I'm called to do, it's not enough. There's not enough change in my relationship with my husband, with my wife. There's not enough effort being put forth here. There's not enough proof. There's not enough progress in this relationship. There's there's not a, there's, God, there's, there's not enough in my home. There's not enough positive things happening with my kids. It's not enough in my career. Not enough in my calling before God. God, you've called me and you you problem there's just not enough. I don't have enough. There's not enough recognition. There's never enough money. Not enough doors opening. It's that dangerous season in your spiritual journey where the progress does not match the promise. It's dangerous. And not enough can be a deadly poison. Please hear me, church. The enemy cannot stop God's reign from coming, but he can sure stop you from running toward the rain in faith. The enemy cannot stop God's reign from coming, but he can sure stop you from contending for the faith. He can still stop you from running toward the reign in faith. In my many years of ministry, many of you have seen it too, I've seen way too many people who gave up in the season of not enough. That's why it's dangerous. Too easy to give up. I'm giving up on this marriage Giving up on my kids, I'm giving up on my calling, I'm giving up on my ministry, I'm giving up on my church. I'm giving up on following God. We're seeing that happening all over. But look at Elijah's reaction. What do you see? I see nothing. Go again. What do you see? I nothing. Go again. What do you see? Nothing. Go again seven times. And finally he comes back. What do you see? Oh, it's it's really it's just small it's insignificant It's hardly even i had to squint to see it it's just a cloud the size of of a man's hand again against a vast sky and i want you to see what elijah said when he heard that let's go gird up whatever that means let's run toward it let's run toward the rain Church, true faith celebrates the small beginnings which are riddled with imperfections. True faith will celebrate that. True faith celebrates the raindrops long before the abundance of rain comes. Are you hearing me this morning? Some of you need to celebrate the drops of rain that are falling on you. The abundance is not there. True faith celebrates the smallest bud that will grow into great fruit. True faith does not despise the day of small beginnings. True faith does not fall in the traps of not enough. True faith does not fall in the trap of this is insignificant. This is, this is nothing. What are you talking about? It's, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's just loaves and fishes that a kid brought today. That's all it is. It's it's nothing. These are just stones in the slingshot of a teenager. It's nothing. But it killed a giant. True faith says, my God, what I have, I bring to you. And I celebrate what you have begun, believing with every fiber of my being that you who have begun a good work will be faithful to complete it. True faith is discerning of the traps of the insignificant. For when you're falling into the trap of this is not enough, there, there, are, there are many, many traps that are there. Let me give you a couple of them. There's the trap of comparison and human ambition. It's not enough compared to yesterday. It's, it's not enough compared to someone else. It's not enough compared to someplace else bigger church, bigger this, bigger resources, bigger bigger job. It's not enough com- it's certainly not enough compared to what I had envisioned. That's one of the traps of the insignificant. It's it's not enough to to whatever I'm comparing to and of course this day of social media helps us so wonderfully where people are spending hours per day comparing themselves with others. And looking at Facebook and Instagram of, of everyone and everyone else, whatever, and all, their, all the filters that they put on, whatever filters do to beautify themselves and give themselves a tan and, and make them look better. And all that they do to, before they put something on social media. And so that you can sit back and say, well, look what restaurant they're eating at tonight. And, and look at what cruise they're on. And look at what, what country they're visiting. And look at their kids and how perfect. You know how long it took them to stage that picture with their kids? Look like you're having fun! Get every hair in place. Look at their car that they have. It's the trap of comparison. Oh, church, rise above it. It's a trap of comparison because what you have is so insignificant. It's a trap of your, uh, of your faith. Comparison on social media, but also comparison in the spiritual and there's another trap, it's the trap of conformity. <clears throat> that will not allow God to bless you in a different way. Because there's a certain way you've prayed for it. You saw it happening. And God blessed me in the past this way, therefore it must be this way again. Let me tell you something, your temple of yesterday will not be the only way God will build your temple of today and tomorrow. Somebody needs to hear that. Your temple of yesterday will not be the only way God will build your temple of today or tomorrow. I'm going to close with this. Pastor Brent. if you want to come and help me. I want everyone to sit real still and let me unpack this to you. I'm going to do it quickly. In the book of Haggai, You have this moment where the people of God, after having been taken into captivity, they come back by the mercy of God. And they begin to try to rebuild the temple. But they get discouraged because what they have to work with is not enough. It's just not enough. They had in their mind the glory of the former temple, the temple of Solomon, one of the wonders of the world. And for 17 years, while they're in their captivity, they've left the work of building the new temple. It's incomplete. It's been interrupted and it's, it's, on, it's on hold. Until Haggai chapter 1, where the prophet Haggai told the people that the Lord was with them. Some of you need to hear this morning in the midst of what you seems invisible to you, or seems grossly insufficient to you, I want you to hear from the Lord this morning. The Lord is with you. In the midst of what looks like absolutely not anywhere near what you need, the Lord is with you. Then the Bible says in Haggai that the Lord, I love this phrase, sparked the enthusiasm of the leaders. I love the idea of the leaders of the house They're getting their enthusiasm sparked. Sparked the enthusiasm of Zerubbabel and the governor and the high priest and the people. And they all come together to build the second temple. You still with me? But all they see in their mind is what the first temple looked like, which was glorious and splendid and and unbelievable, gorgeous, and every possible wonderful thing. But they have very limited resources, and they've got stones and rubble that they're looking at. So what happens in chapter 2, they start saying, well, it's, 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 not, it's not enough. And God goes to the very root of it in chapter 2 when he says, how many of you saw this temple in its former glory? Actually, only a very few of them had. But they were still comparing it to the past and what they had heard about the past and what it had been. And God says to them, and so how do you look upon it now? Is this temple not in your eyes as nothing? Now be strong, which is another way of saying, go again. And it will be according to my covenant. And my spirit is with you. And the glory of this temple will be greater than the former. Doesn't look like it. It just all depends on how you're going to define glory. Stay with me. Let me say it to you plainly this morning. You may be comparing something to the past, a former glory, looked a certain way, acted a certain way, functioned a certain way. We do not, as believers in 2019, have the privilege of putting God in a box. Don't say this is the way it has to be done. Don't assume this was the temple as it was and nothing can compare to it. Church, his mercies are new every morning and great is his faithfulness. You don't get to limit him and neither do I. And when he said the glory of this temple will be greater than the former, well, that's just not, <laughs> that's just not possible as we're standing on stones and rubble. I mean, even what we're standing on if we shined it up it wouldn't it wouldn't wouldn't be it's just not possible historians will say that the second temple in its appearance never approached the wealth and the human beauty of the former temple so what is god saying let me tell you god all through the old testament is announcing jesus christ which is why you need to start on page 151 in your immersed Bible this week. All through the Old Testament, he's announcing Jesus Christ. And he's saying, there's a new temple coming. Yes, sacrifices have gone on day and night. But Jesus will come and offer his life, which will be once for all, one sacrifice for all people, one sacrifice for all time. And the temple will not be a building made by hands with stone. It will be billions upon billions upon billions of temples of the Holy Spirit the glory will come and dwell in human beings for ages to come all the way to Bethesda Community Church in 2019. Therefore, the second temple is much greater because the second temple is you. It's the church of the living God. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And what started as not enough has and is becoming the glory of God far, 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 far beyond anything anyone could ever imagine. Becky and I just spent time with 1,500 missionaries two weeks ago. And when I look what they're doing all across the world and what's happening in places, it's not enough. It's not enough. But they are carrying the glory of God in them because the Holy Spirit dwells within them. They are the temple going forward doing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What started is not enough. Is far beyond anything we could ever imagine. And as Elijah ran toward the rain... The Bible says, we just read it, that the hand of the Lord came upon him in supernatural strength. So Bethesda, let us never forget the cloud like the hand of a man, so small, not enough, prepares the conquest of the hand of God with supernatural strength upon your life for the glory of the name of Jesus. Let us not be shaken by the invisible. Let us not be moved by the insignificant, never falling into the trap of comparison or the trap of conformity, but let us always and ever be people who will contend for the faith. And the church said, Amen.